Jesus' name. You may be seated. Well, hello again. Oh, you seem a little skittish today. Okay. Back when I was a kid, I had my favorite possession in the whole world, and that was my set of uh, my collection of matchbox cars. And I had roughly 13 to 30 of them, and I would keep them in a box all lined up because that was my personality. And it was my prized possession. My kids, my kids today, they have four or five cases of cars plus a tub that stands about this tall. And I'm going to guess there's at least 150 cars. And it, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's just a difference. It's the way life plays out. I remember as a kid when my dad finally, 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 hallelujah, got an Atari system. We could play Pong. You know, some of you don't know what that is because you've been living in 4G and, you know, 4D your whole life. But back in the, back in the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, this was considered entertainment. I mean, you were on the edge of your seat trying to hit the little ball with your, basically your line. <laughs> so all it was was a line on the screen, but it was exciting. We got, we got Atari, baby. Today in my house, I think there's three gaming systems, three, a Wii, a PS2, a PS3, and, a, and at times as a parent, I admit this, at times as a parent, I think, I think somewhere along the way we've crossed the line as a society. I mean, doesn't, don't you ever as a parent, you think, didn't some, maybe in the 80s or 90s, did we go past the too far into the land of excess? Do you ever wonder that as a parent? I mean, I do sometimes. And, and it's funny because just this year, uh, actually last year, a school in California did this um, big, long study about how much is enough. This was an elementary school, okay? And they, they did b- a bunch of class projects all the way through the elementary school. And the kids concluded, after this ex- extensive study, the kids concluded on their own, on their own, the kids concluded that as kids, they felt they had three times as much stuff as they really needed. As one 10-year-old girl put it in, in her little uh, booklet she made for the, for the project, I can't close my closet door. <laughs> she, you're like, it's okay, honey. Just shovel it out of the way, and eventually you'll be able to close the closet door. Um, John DeGraff, who's one of the authors of the book Affluenza, he says it this way. He says, you know, we, we somewhere, yes, we've crossed the line, and... And now, today in America, shopping centers have supplanted churches as the symbol of our cultural values. And, you know, I think he's probably right. And in some ways, I think we churches have, have, you know, even followed along, and now we make our churches to look like shopping centers. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of this weird symbiotic relationship. Let me ask you a question. In your neighborhood where you live, do you live in a neighborhood with garages? Yes, okay. How many of your neighbors can park their cars in their garages I mean, think about it. I mean, I know this is going to surprise some of you, but believe it or not, 20, 30 years ago, they designed these things to hold cars. It was, it's, I know. And, they, and the, the cars back then were bigger. I mean, they, you know, think 1979, you know, Chrysler, you know, town and country. I mean, these were big behemoths. Okay? You know, c- cars. Or how many of your neighbors have uh, a storage bin or two storage bins? And, and they're full of stuff. Um, 
I don't need to tell you, I don't need to tow this out anymore because you know this. I mean, we, we are a nation of consumers. It's what we do. We consume. We buy and acquire, and, and we, we get the true religion genes and the iPhone 4 and, and the right Acura, and we think that when we do those things, there's a part of us, and we are. We're hoping that that item will somehow make us feel a little better or will make, improve our life a little more, and, and we, there's a part of us that really believes that. Um, but it's not just stuff. I mean, this consumerism isn't just about things anymore in our country, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's transferred and it's become a way of thinking and it, and it influences our relationships. I mean, don't you ever sit back and, you know, I'm not saying you judge young people, but you're thinking about young people today and you go, man, you know, it's like they can't see past their nose and he loves her and she loves him, but it's all about what he can do for her and it's all about what she can do for him and they're looking to the other person to make them happy and, and, and they're tweaking relationships and dialing, you know, the needy friends, forget them, throw them off the bus. You know, I don't have time for that. I just have time for the friends that can, I can laugh with and that encourage me and make me feel good about it myself. I mean, you ever have those thoughts? I mean, you do occasionally. Um, and it's, it's part of our milieu. Uh, the days of Andy Griffith are gone. I mean, the, the people who filmed the show, the Andy Griffith show, wrote that at the time, in 1960, their show was nostalgic, that for most of them, that's what they remember life when they were kids, not 1960, but when they were kids in the 30s and 40s. And so here you have the Andy Griffith show where it's do the right thing, you know, be a part of community, you know, uh, uh, step up, we're all, we're all on this together. And then fast forward to today, and the shows that we have on are like Survivor. And, and it's okay to watch Survivor. I'm not saying that's a bad, evil show, but look at, look at the values that play out in the show. You would think, I always thought before the show went live, when it was announced, in my mind, what, you know what I had thought the show was about? I thought it was going to be a show about putting a group of people on a deserted island and seeing how they could work together to survive. And then I watched the show and I was like, oh, yeah, it's not about that. It's about, you know, you know, betrayals, you know, coming out on top. I mean, winning. It was all about winning. You know, the, it, in Survivor, Bachelor, you know, forget the other people, forget the relationships. As long as I win, as long as I don't lose, you lose, I win. That's how it is because I always have to win. Um, and, and it's part of our culture. Um, one, one author I read said, consumerism is now America's largest religion. It's like, I didn't know it was a religion. Can they get tax-exempt status? Um, <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you talk to kids today, ask them, why are you in school? Well, so I can get a good education. Why do you need a good education? So I can get a good job. Why do you need a good job? So I can buy blah, 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 blah. And have, I mean, there it is. It's woven into our cultural fabric. And it even affects church land. Believe it or not, you know, it's a part of our religious and spiritual experience in America. And um, we pastors, we've done this. We've kind of chased along with it. And we've made church into this kind of commodity that you can consume and come and get what you want. Um, and this was really made uh, palpable to me be- because I was reading about a church. These guys are insane. A church in Canada... Okay, so they're in, I think, Toronto or one of the bigger cities, and a megachurch had a problem. Their pastor had a moral failure, and so there were all these people leaving the megachurch. It was bad. But their church all of a sudden got lots of these people, and they grew. They almost like doubled in size within a six-month period. And do you know what the church leadership decided to do? 
this is crazy. You know what they did? They had a powwow and they were like, um, this has turned into consumption and so how can we combat this? I know, we'll stop having Sunday services every week. We'll only have them every other week. And, and we'll do that for six months. I know. I'm reading along and I'm like, are you guys nuts? Are you smoking marijuana? What are you doing? You have church, okay? Church is what you do. You do it every week. And no, they did it for six months. And sure enough, it contracted. And, and, and he shared an email he got from one of the families. And it was this amazing email. It was like, you know, we, we, were, we had been so engrafted in, you know, thus and such megachurch, and we never thought we'd find another church where there was a compelling vision and something really exciting and that God was on the move. And we just felt so at home, and we were welcomed, and it was such a great experience. But, you know, we got kids. And, you know, for where we are, we just need the consistency of every week. And, you know, the every other thing doesn't really work for us. And I know you want us to be meeting with, you know, the people in our community on those Sundays that aren't church, but, you know, that just doesn't really work for us for where we are and what we need and what our kids need. And da-da-da-da, and he goes on. And, and his point, the pastor and the thing was, oh, score. And I'm like, what? What? Oh. But, but there it is. And, and it plays out in so many ways. As pastors and as a pastor, this is the thing that worries me the most. This is the thing that keeps me up at night. This is the, I don't worry about Satan. I really don't. I don't worry about the devil. I don't worry about is, Islamists taking over the world. I don't worry about gay rights. I don't worry about any of those things that tend to polarize Christians or Christians get rabbit in the mouth about these days. The thing that worries me is consumerism. The thing that, that I stress about, and, and it's part of my life, it's, part of, it's just part of our cultural context. It's conditioning. Uh, we're all conditioned to live this way. Um, when you talk to pastors of very large, successful churches, because in America we define success by size, okay? So you're successful if you're bigger. That's just our cultural milieu. When you pull these people aside uh, and they start to be honest, you'll, you start hearing things like, I don't like church anymore. I've read several of them where they say some version of this. I don't like church anymore. I feel like I have to show up Sunday and perform, and I have to hit this ball so that I will keep people entertained and they'll come back next week because I know if I don't hit the ball, if I don't perform, if I don't do it really well, they're gone. How sad is that in the church that people, you know, people called by God have those kind of feelings? I remember being at a conference where uh, a pastor of a larger church in, in Michigan, he said, I, there was this time in my ministry and every time I drove to church, I was clenching the wheel and I was sweating and I, my heart was racing and I hated it because I felt like, you know, I've got to be on and I've got to, you know, hit this mark so that people go, whoa, and they come back. And he's like, it was awful. It was vicious. I just wanted to run away. I'm not there. I don't ever want to be there because that's just not a wet place to be. And so I want to wade into consumerism. I think Tony Campolo is right. I, I, believe that, uh, I believe that consumerism is the thing that poses the greatest threat to the church today. Tony Campolo puts it this way. He says, if, if churches don't rise up and challenge consumerism, it will eat away and destroy evangelical Christianity in the next 25 years. It'll just be gone, irrelevant, because consumerism will win over Christianity. Um, I think the only antidote to that is, 
is to follow Jesus. And when I say follow Jesus, I don't just mean, you know, Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. If he can't do it, someone else can. You know, I don't mean being a fan. I don't mean being like a Facebook friend of Jesus. You know, he's my homeboy. We hang out together. I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean it the way Jesus meant it and the way he meant it. And he said something very specifically about what it means to follow him. And it's something that hits me square between the eyes like a bullet. And and I want to wade into that because I realized that I've never preached on this passage ever in my whole life. And, 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 and I want to wade into, I think, what I think is one of the, the big passages of Jesus. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, you have this interplay that's going on, and the disciples are figuring out who Jesus really is. And Peter makes this statement, oh, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus is like, ding, yep, mm-hmm. don't tell anybody, but you're right. And then they get into a further discussion, and Jesus says, oh, wait, there's more. I'm going to die. I'm actually going to be, I'm going to go to a cross, and I'm going to be raised again, but I'm going to die. The Messiah, I'm, the, yes, the anointed one, and I'm going to the cross. Thank you very much. And Peter jumps in immediately, and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die. That's, whoa, wrong story. Wrong story, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him. And what does he say to Peter? Get behind me who? Get behind me who? Satan. What? What are you calling somebody Satan for? I mean, that is just absolutely insane. And here's what I think is going on. Uh, When... Uh, whenever you and I take a path to discipleship that does not involve a cross, that that just comes from Satan. I mean, Satan wants to chart out a pathway to discipleship that is a crossless path. And, and, and so let's just wade into the text. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, and this is what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Hey, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. And so what's he talking about there? I mean, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Crucifixion in the first century was a very, very brutal way to die. If you've never been oriented to it, let me do that in just 10 easy seconds, okay? I'm a condemned criminal. I'm going to be crucified. Not good for me, but entertainment for the crowds, okay? The Romans give me this big, giant piece of wood, a cross beam, and I will be forced now to carry it this big heavy object, I've usually been beaten or whipped, and I carry this to the place where they're going to execute me. When we arrive to the place, the cross beam is placed down, and then I'm laid down on top of it. They then drive nails right here between the two bones of my wrist, because that's going to help support my weight. And they nail me through the feet, kind of like this, so that I can pull myself up and catch a breath once they raise me. Step three is, they raise, they literally raise you up onto the post that's in the ground, and there you hang until you die. It's a horrible way to die. It's terrible. It inspired great fear among all the people of Rome. They were like, oh, I don't want to have that happen to me. You know, I'll do whatever you say, Caesar. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's for the people that heard it the first time, that's a very stark, you know, thing for him to say. So what's going on? One, I think it's a very literal thing. He meant it literally in a sense of, if you want to follow me, you need to be prepared to die literally. And many of the early 
followers, that's what happened to them. They were persecuted and they were executed. But then there's a second meaning that's part of the text, and it's the one that most of us grew up with in church, and that is a more uh, metaphorical one. Taking up your cross really means surrendering what you want and laying what you want down and letting go of it and embracing instead what God wants. It's one of the harder things in life. It is. But it's also one of the most life-giving things in life. And I want to weigh into that. Jesus gives three reasons why it makes sense to take up your cross in this passage. He gives three reasons right here in the text. And I want to wade through them. Verse 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Okay? The opposites are true. In other words... If you try and hold on to your life, if you try to put yourself in the driver's seat, if you're trying to live for you, happiness is your main goal, and that's how you're going through life, you know what? In the end, you end up losing the very thing you're trying to grab hold of and keep secure and protect. It, it, it doesn't make sense, but Jesus spells it out. He says, in fact, if you want to really have your life, you need to literally let go of it and lay down what you want at God's feet and, and ask what God wants. And in this, this way, he's phrasing it, if you hang, you'll lose it, but if you give up, and it's framed in terms of a choice. You and I have a choice. We can choose to, to hold on to our life, hold on to what we want, hold on to our desires and drives and all of those things, or we can let go and literally lay it before God. Um, Jesus gives a second reason in verse 26. And, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Here's two things that are unequal in value. Everything the world has to offer, so I don't know what that means for you. I can just talk about culturally what it means in America. If you had the world by its tail, it would mean that you're super wealthy. You're at least a billionaire because right millionaires are just so common. Okay, So if you're a billionaire and maybe you have your own network on cable TV and it would also mean that you're a bit of a celebrity, and it would mean that you've got a great body, right? Because in America, it's just, you know, that's where we are, okay? So you've got the, all those things. You've got the world by its tail. You've got all those things going for you. And Jesus is saying all of that added up together does not equal what you yourself, your life, is worth. You're worth more than that. Your life, your soul, is worth more than anything and everything the world can give you. That's how much your own soul is worth. Okay, and then he gives a third reason, and that's in verse uh, 27. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in all the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Uh, the, the Greek word is mellow. I'm about to, okay? I'm about to come. I'm about to come. And when I come, I'm going to issue judgment and reward. Judgment for, the, uh, judgment for those who have not taken up their cross, and reward for those who have. Now, as a pastor and as a trained Pharisee, I always used to get into the, well, what exactly is that judgment? What exactly are those rewards? And you know what I've come to, d to decide for myself? It doesn't matter. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, if I'm trying to figure out what the judgment and the reward is so that I can somehow make a more informed decision, I don't need more information to make an informed decision. I mean, if you think about it, do you want to be on the receiving end of judgment from the Son of God? 
Whatever that is, I mean, seriously, whatever it is, do you, does that really, is that appealing? No, it's not appealing. I don't, <laughs> I'd rather be on reward. I don't care what the reward is. I know I don't want to be on the judgment end. So for me, the specifics of, well, you know, is it salvation? What kind of reward is it in heaven? It's irrelevant because the, the bad end of the deal is bad enough that I don't want to have anything to do with it. Thank you very much. And those are three reasons that Jesus gives. And then he kind of wraps it up in verse 28 and he says this, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of them will not taste death, is the way the old translation says it. And, and right in the next chapter, this thing happens on a mountain, and Moses appears, and Elijah appears, and some of the people who had heard Jesus say that saw all that. So there it is. They got a taste of, oh, yeah, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. I should take what you're saying really seriously. I should make up my mind. Oh, got it. Thank you very much. And, and there you have it in the passage. This call, the call to die to oneself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, is a call to complete surrender. That's really what it is. And that's what I want to remind you and remind me of. And really the antidote to consumerism is to take up our cross and follow Jesus, is to literally die to ourselves. Along those lines, I want to simply ask a question. On any given day in your life, on any given day, who comes out on top? Who, who carries the day? Is it you? Is it what you want to get happy, to be happy? Is it, is it manipulating the circumstances and people so that you come out on top? Is it about how you feel or is it what God wants? Is it what God is doing? Who comes out? Who wins? Who carries the day on any given day? I believe so many of us Christians are really unhappy and unfulfilled because we're living for ourselves. I'm only going to speak for me now. I'm not going to speak for you. If I started really and when I'm living for myself, that's just no fun. Why? I don't know about, again, I'm only speaking for me. I'm just not all that. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm even worth dying for, let alone living for. I need something bigger, something grander, something far bigger than me. And so... Uh, living for myself just seems silly. Um, so I have a couple of homework assignments, and really these are personal, personal growth projects that could help you on a path of surrender. One has to do with stuff, okay? I, we, we're talking about consumerism, and a primary attribute of consumerism is the acquisition of things. If you have a credit card, which I don't have any on me, but if you have one and you use it, I would consider getting a credit card condom. I said the word, okay? Credit card condom, okay? And what it is is you make an envelope and on the envelope and you put the card in the envelope so that every time you take the credit card out, it's it's just, you know, it's got its protection around it. Okay? And as you're reading along, as you're reading along on the outside of the envelope, put these questions. Do I really need it? Can I borrow it from someone else? How much time will I need to work in order to afford it? And there you go. I mean, it's, it, it is a prophylactic that can help you spiritually be more surrendered in life, okay? Credit card condom. That's not my idea. Those are the folks at PBS. That's their idea. How crazy is that? All right? The second homework assignment is, is simple. When it comes to people, people, if you see a need, rather than run the other direction, ask, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? you. 
And I know it, it could be inconveniencing. I know that it could require some things that maybe you're not prepared to give or you, not, you don't want to give. I, I understand that. I do. And, and in this message, I'm not talking about boundaries and unhealthy boundaries and that kind of stuff, but how can I help? How can I help you? I'm in, when you and I do that, we're in essence taking our own agenda and taking what we want, and we're kind of setting it on the shelf, aren't we? And we're allowing the other person to become kind of center stage. And it gives us an opportunity to serve the way Jesus served. Um, uh, consumer pastors, do you know what the question they ask of their churches? How can I keep people coming? Uh, the question that I'm asking myself these days is this. How can I help every person that God brings my way become more like Jesus? How can I do that? What would that look like? What do I need to change? What do I need to do? Um, if you're here today and you're just re-entering church life, and this is relatively new uh, to you, I, I want to simply suggest this. Living for God is actually a better way to live. And what Jesus is talking about in this passage is really that. And living for God by setting aside what you want, by setting aside your goals and dreams. I know it sounds weird to even say this, but I want you to consider that in doing that, you actually become alive. You actually, it's like you start breathing deeply, and it's like you see the world in color. It's like you, you realize that you're now on this adventure, and you're doing things that the one who made you and designed you has for you, and it, it it, the drudgery and misery and everything else that becomes when we're focused on us and, and the smallness kind of ebbs away. It goes away. And I just want to suggest that. Um, I really do believe Tony Campolo is right, and I want generations to be one of many churches throughout the United States that's characterized by following Jesus, by people, by individuals, by men and women and teenagers who say, you know what? What I want and, and where I want to be in life and all of that stuff, I set it down right here. God, what do you want? What do you want from me? What do you want for me? How do you want to use me? I'm here. I'm telling you, we could like take over the United States in a decade. It could happen. So I want to pray for you.